was on the block the crime was looking up the truth this was the sound of my youth the indigo girls the indigo girls are made up of atlanta duo amy ray and emily saliers they met in high school in the mid 80s and have been playing and touring together ever since the indigo girls sang the theme songs that really defined my late 30s and early 40s. And their music inspired me to keep playing guitar, to keep learning new songs. The Indigo Girls were the first concert my parents ever took me and my sister to. And I distinctly remember that wondrous collective feeling of being surrounded by strangers who all knew the words to my favorite songs. I really think that the Indigo Girls made a generation of women feel good about being who they were, chic or outdoorsy, quiet or loud, queer or straight. And a feeling that a lot of Indigo Girls fans identify with is feeling good and strong and beautiful while admitting vulnerability or indecisions. Welcome to Details, Please. I'm Gail Reed, and my co-host is Rose Reed, my daughter. Every episode, we ask questions to get the untold answers, and this first season is a mini-series dedicated to our greatest musical influences. For this episode, Rose talks to Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls about her approach to songwriting and her lifelong relationship with Emily Saliers. And she tells us how her musical journey began. two older sisters and they were both playing piano and singing already and um like my older sisters would listen to a lot of records and I would you know hear that either my one of my sisters was kind of more into like musical theater and maybe like the carpenters and kind of lighter stuff and then my other sister was into like the Woodstock sort of era Janis Joplin and Jefferson Airplane and all that stuff and so between the two of them, <laughs> I kind of found that I liked both, probably liked everything that they were listening to, and I sort of, and it was just established in my family. We were like a music family, you know, you bought records and you listened to them, and we would go to the library and check them out from the library, and um, I would make cassettes of them and stuff like that. So, uh, it's probably just my family as my initial catalyst, I mean, honestly, and just, it was in part of our lives so much that I just was drawn to it and wanted to be able to create it myself. You know, I grew up um, in Atlanta in Grant Park. And so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when I think about like my personal growth, like as a human, I think about how it, it's so parallel <laughs> to childhood and like singing in this blue Aerostar van with my mom to like the nomads, Indians and saints days. And then <laughs> I... <laughs> Then I think of middle school and like those kind of awkward years of becoming independent and feeling like a little embarrassed. And I have the shaming of the sun sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have this like incredible memory of my mom um, playing her electric guitar for the first time. And I came home and she had shaming of the sun 
um, turned all the way up. Like it was about to like blow out our speakers in the house. And it was like understood. It was like, do not disturb. And I was, I was like 11 or 12. So I just looked at her like, oh my God, I would never have the confidence to just like do that. Like, please ignore me. I'm busy here. It was like in a public part of the house too. That's funny. My friends, they wash the windows and they shine in the sun. Tell me, wake up early in the morning sometimes. You want a beautiful job done. I said, let's put on some tunes, sing along, and do a little all day. Look down through the riverside, take off our shoes, and wash these sins away. The river said, la la la. Shame on you, river says, la la la. Shame on you. <laughs> uh, I do remember playing that song over and over again. It was uh, it was a really easy song to play, and it was exactly in my key. Amy sings in my range, so I really, um, I just really loved that song because not only was it easy to play, but it also was perfect for my my voice, my vocal range, and um, you know, I could really sing it out. You know, I would have been 40 uh, when I got that electric guitar. Never have really played it much, but um, it was a really wonderful gift from your dad. So I should get it out and play it more. And I should play that song. I checked out musically in the 80s. I really didn't like punk. I wasn't really crazy about um, all those really popular groups, you know, the Talking Heads and Devo. And, you know, Dad liked them a good bit. But I just wasn't into that music at all. I think I was just really busy doing other things, working on my own career, getting uh, you know, established as, uh, as a CPA, and then immediately... You know, following that was starting a family and having two kids right away. I didn't have time really to know what was happening in the music world. But by the early 90s, um, you know, I remember really clearly Naomi Green introducing me to Indigo Girls. She just recommended that I listen to them. She said, they, you know, they were really great and they were from Georgia and they were, you know, from Athens and Atlanta. And, I mean, that album, I mean, I played that thing to death. I know every single song on that album. And uh, just really followed them all through the, the 90s and saw them perform. They perform in Atlanta a lot. So you can really feel close to a, a group when you, like you said, you really, you came of age listening to them. I matured. They helped me hang on. Can you remember the first song that you wrote, even if it was like a more like a poem in a journal or anything like that? I was obsessed with Elton John when I was really young, and I wrote, probably after hearing Benny and the Jets, I wrote a song called Benny, the Penny, and I. <laughs> 
I don't know what it means or anything. I don't even have, I probably don't even have the words anymore. But I have, I have old journals from when I was really young still that I don't really look at because I'm scared to look at them. Right. I mean, who wouldn't be? But, um, you know, so I was writing little things down. I wasn't as advanced as, as Emily in my language and my chords and stuff, but I was writing stuff down. I was writing plays with friends. We'd write plays and put them on in the carport <laughs> for each other. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that. A few yeah. friends, maybe, you know, it was like a garage band show, but it was a garage band. It was like a garage play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, is that one of the reasons that you covered um, Mad Hatter's, the Elton John song, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's? Emily and I were both very, very devoted Elton John fans. From our earliest days, we did covers of Elton John songs and um, just worked on our harmony. Wow, I've always wondered how you picked your cover songs. Uh, just stuff we liked. I mean, literally just stuff we liked. And then we started adding more with more music in and playing at places where you could play with more music. And that was more like our early 20s when it really, when that's really, when it turned around, that's all we did. I think it's really fascinating that she was obsessed with Elton John because Elton John was one of the first musicians that I got obsessed with. And I'm a good 15 years older than Amy Ray. Yeah, I mean, Elton John first came to the United States in 1970. He was actually the first uh, performer I ever saw in concert. I snuck out at 15. Um, I didn't sneak out of the house, but I lied to my parents about where I was going because I was going to the Fillmore East in the East Village. And it was, at that point, not the safest place to go. And it was at night, and I was meeting my boyfriend, who they hated. But Elton John was amazing. He didn't even have top billing that night. He was the second of three bands, and he was a beautiful songwriter. Uh, Bernie Taupin wrote beautiful lyrics. So I understand completely why Amy would be enthralled with him, but I just think it's very interesting that that's her f the first memory of being obsessed with someone was, was Elton John. Broadway's got It's got a lot of songs to sing If I knew the tunes I might join in Do you think that relationship to build the confidence to play your own music, um, what what was that road like? Or is that still like a lifelong journey? Um, well, when we were young, I don't think it was... I'm not sure we even thought about confidence, you know, because it was just fun. When you're young, you sort of, you have a different kind of confidence. It's like a oblivious confidence, you know, you just, you don't even know that you shouldn't feel confident. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't that great. I mean, we were very fledgling and we had like a, a blend and we had sort of a harmony thing instantly that I yeah. think stood out. But other than that, we were still really learning our craft and, you know, just didn't know a lot. So... I think we just had confidence of youth at that time. And then 
as we got older, we got better at what we were doing. And so the confidence kind of became more concrete. But it's never been something where we felt that sure about ourselves. We just do it because we are completely compelled to do it, you know? Yeah. I remember once being at the Angola Prison Rodeo in Louisiana. And twice a year, they have a rodeo and they sell the things that they make. And I remember I asked one of the guys, I said, how did you get into this? Like, did you ask to like learn from somebody or, and he looked at me and he's like, I don't know what you mean, but all I can tell you is it's a fever. And I caught the fever. Mm, That's, yeah. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, and how has your relationship to songwriting changed or evolved? Do you find that you get passionate about writing or it comes out of you in a certain emotion, a certain mood or a certain situation that you find yourself in personally? You know, now, and I think probably, this probably was a general rule all along, but you didn't, you don't know it when you're young. Um, you know, 99% of the time, it's not like a bolt of lightning and the muse hits you and the song comes out. Like, that's a rare thing that happens. <laughs> really rare. The other time is just you making sure you spend time writing and sitting in the chair because if, if you're not sitting in a chair working on it, it's not going to, nothing's going to come. I mean, you have to be there to receive whatever's going to be sent to you. <laughs> you have to make space for it, and it can be any space. It can be like, well, I'm going to be at my grandma's house for a week, so... I'm going to find 30 minutes a day to write, you know. Maybe I have to do it outside. Maybe I have to go to the Starbucks down the street, whatever it's going to take. Oh, I can't play guitar because it's going to be too loud, so instead I'm going to just work on lyrics. You know, like you got to find – it's really important, and it really makes you more prolific if you, if you do that. Like if you just say, five days a week I'm going to write, you know, one to three hours a day, and you make the time and the space for it. I love this line, the time and making the time and space to work on songs because that's the only way she's going to continue to write songs. And I think that for those of us that love music but don't are not a part of the world of musicians and musicianship and songwriters, we don't have a model to teach us how you might go about writing a song. I think for me, I've always held back really diving into my music, thinking that I was, that I could become a musician. I've never considered myself a musician. I, you know, I, I usually say for pe- the few people that actually know I play guitar, if they see a guitar in my house and they ask who plays and they assume it's Matthew because he's the man and for some reason people assume that it's the man's guitar, um, I always just say, oh, I dabble. The man's guitar, the man's mandolin, the man's bass, the man's electric guitar that fills your house. <laughs> yeah. All of those things. And and it never occurred to me that I could construct my life in a way that I could possibly write songs or write lyrics or, you know, God forbid, look for somebody that wrote music and maybe wrote lyrics since I don't feel at all capable of, of writing music at, the, at this point in my you know, I don't feel like I have enough knowledge to write music. But to be able to understand 
I think you have a huge advantage over me, Rose, because you have most of your life ahead of you. And to talk to these great musicians like Amy Ray, who are still so active in their careers, you re- I really understand now that the difference between an Amy Ray and somebody that you know, was a flash in the pan or burned out early or, you know, God forbid, died because they couldn't handle the, the fame and the fortune. She continues to bring fresh material to her audiences and to her herself and feel as if she's still um, a viable part of the music scene because she's still creating and not just playing her old hits. I was thinking about your journey on your, like, as a musician. I think you said in an interview, Goodnight Tender, approaching country music, uh, even the technicalities of the way that you mic'd it, played the song, recorded it, just these really rich and very honest approach to music. I was thinking about how it parallels kind of our human journey that, like, the older we get, and hopefully it's like a journey to more authenticity, more honesty with ourselves and with the world. And I was curious if you think that your musical journey reflects your personal journey. Yeah, I think they're intertwined. I think just as much my personal journey is reflected in my musical journey and my musical journey is reflected in my personal journey. I mean, they're just, you can't, you can't take them apart and neither one of them came first. You know, I can remember like some of your earlier songs from Jonas and Ezekiel and covering Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Between the reservation and the corporate bank, they're sending federal tanks. It is a nice, but it's reality. Bury my heart at Wounded Knee. Yeah. And now to today, you know, your work. Um, uh, you know, protesting the pipeline. I think I I think of that as like a linear and constant progression. Yeah, I think it is a linear progression. I think it's um, it's linear in a way, but you know, you circle back around a lot because you have these moments where you learn something and then you kind of dig back into an experience that you had and it informs the thing that you just learned. So you're kind of always going back and picking up a few things from the past. In the same way that, like, when you're writing a song, you might have put a snippet away somewhere, a recording of a verse that you never used, and you might go back and find it when you're working on something new. And it's the perfect thing for what you're working on, and you didn't understand at the time why you were writing that. Can you give an example of that? Um, oh, God, I have a million songs where I did that. <laughs> For me, songwriting is always like that. I have, a, I have like eight journals and I tote them around with me everywhere I go because I mine them always for like archaeological, it's like an archaeological dig. Yeah. <laughs> Artifacts that never got used or explained. So I think life is like that generally for me and I might be working on a project around pipelines, trying to you know support the water protectors and occupiers up there in Standing Rock and I might go back and look at stuff that I was thinking about when we were working with the Zapatistas in southern Mexico and the way they organized and 
kind of how they survived the intimidation of the military and stuff. And it informs the way I look at what's happening now and helps me. So it's just letting things build. You have to go back and dip. and It's a learning curve. You have to use it. You know, you have to really use it. And it's just, it's linear, but you have to constantly be circling back around so that you actually use your experiences. I once heard you say, um, right before you performed Land of Canaan, and you said it used to be a ballad, but then you heard the replacements and it wasn't anymore. <laughs> true. That's true. When I first wrote this song, it was a ballad, and then I heard the replacements, and it wasn't anymore. I was wondering if you could tell me what that meant. I heard the the sort of fierceness and the velocity of them that it wasn't about song tempo, it was a velocity of like attitude and passion and just not letting anything get in the way, you know? Yeah. That feeling inside changed me. And so a song like Land of Canaan became this like driving kind of country rock tune, almost, you know. You talk about a lot of, like, the influences, uh, your early influences of your music and your you know, becoming a musician, um, Land of Canaan and some other uh, songs or albums that you've made over, you know, the course of your career, I think have become a soundtrack for the lives of someone like myself and I'm sure a lot of others. Um, you know, I, I, I think I can, I can imagine myself prepubescent um, singing Land of Canaan with my mom, like on vacation, just feeling like the height of vacation mode. And also, like, thinking thinking of myself, like, you know, taking my first road trip and my 1989 Toyota Celica playing, uh, you know, revisiting some of my favorite Indigo Girl songs. What What's that like, you know, that this thing that is once so personal that you create, like, almost has this, like, life of its own without you? It's like when, when it becomes Indigo Girls and it's like this group thing, there's a third being, which is the Indigo Girls. And neither one of us feel completely credited with that. You know, like we just feel like that's an entity that we participate in, but I'm not sure we really created it on our own. (laughs) So we never, we can't really take credit for it, I guess. In some ways, it just feels like this community thing that kind of happens. Our audience and our community and our friends and everybody we've ever played with. And it's just this thing that has a life of its own now. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like some kind of divine blah blah blah, you know. And so I don't relate. I don't like engage in, in this individual way of like, yeah, that's me. I influence that person. Like I just think when they talk to me, I immediately think, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I, I'm obsessed with Bonavera's new record right now and listen to it constantly. Like it's it's this thing where I almost stand outside of myself, you know, to think about it. If that makes any sense. 
It really does. I mean, that's one of the things that I, I'm always fascinated with, um, with music and the interviews that I'm doing in the podcast is about relationships. And one of the things that really strikes me is, especially a musician in a musical group, is that these personal relationships, they it's almost like this web and um, like a spider web of like all these different um, things that sometimes touch and sometimes don't touch. Um, one of the things that I'm really curious about or I've been thinking about is um, how one relationship can often have a domino effect on other parts of our lives. Um, we decide, oh, I want to move to this place to, um, or I'm going to stay in this place for this person or change my job because I just need to make myself happier because it affects my personal relationship. I was just wondering if there's one relationship like that that has stuck out to you during your during your life. Mm. Well, I mean, obviously, Emily is a relationship like that. Although the beautiful thing about us is that neither one of us really compelled the other person to change something. You know what I mean? Like, we just kind of, we both wanted to end up in Atlanta, and and then, like, everything's just been, there's nothing that, we, we weren't held back from anything or had to make a decision that kind of forced something so that it really resonated through our whole lives. Although it's completely the most central relationship in my life, you know, and affects everything and how my day is organized and how my years are organized and everything. I mean, it's just part of the fabric, you know. I guess in a way you could say like Indigo Girls, yeah, they've create, we've created this because of that relationship I have this whole network of friends and allies and communities spread out all over the place that I never would have had, you know, had it not been for what I do with Emily. You know, I think so many people have this quest um, and hold themselves to this idea of I'm only complete or I've only experienced life as full if I can have what you just described in a relationship with a romantic partner. I'm wondering if talking to you, if maybe readjusting those expectations for that kind of uh, successful relationship to, you know, make its appearance either in a professional relationship, a friendship, um, or, you know, like the work you did, you do with Winona. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if like talking to you, or maybe if people hear this, they can think about, wow, maybe I could, that pursuit could be not in a romantic partner, but in another kind of partnership. I totally think so. I just think that you should have different kinds of relationships in your life, you know? And then one can't fill you up completely. So we can, I can pursue all these things with Emily and, and we can, it can be the kind of a central relationship in my life in some ways, but it doesn't feed everything that I need. Just like, because it's not like we, we don't hang out together or anything. We just do this journey together. But we're more like siblings. And then I need my friends, you know, so if a couple of really significant friends that have been with me my whole life, you know, since I was pretty young. And then my romantic relationship, you know, and my family, my relationship with my daughter, just like, yeah, just so I think you just need so many different kinds of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think you can't get everything out of one. So it's good just to focus on what you have at the time and, engage in it in a way that you're getting 
it's you're nurturing it and it's growing in its own way and not really pay attention to what you're not getting. And then the other things kind of come out of that, you know, like because you're healthy and you're whole, you attract other people and the things that you need, you know, but you, but I don't, I think you can have a richness in a, you can have this rich journey with someone in your artistic life and it's just one person and it sort of takes over everything, but it's still not going to meet all your needs, you know? Yeah. There's no way it can. It's too much pressure, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, here's another. Do you think that maybe you could take this month and write lyrics to a song? I mean, I suppose I could do anything if I put my mind to it. What about a theme song? For this details, please? I could write lyrics. Can you find someone to write the music? I found her. All right. You know, a lot of people write lyrics to the music. So does she have a song yet for us? No, but she said that I could, that she could go back and forth with you. Yeah, I'd love to do that. That's really, you're like making all my dreams come true, Rosie. (laughs) Does your daughter have a favorite Indigo Girls or Amy Ray song? You know, it's so funny. She really likes the whole Goodnight Tender record. She's always, she calls it her lullaby record. And so when she's feeling in that kind of, that lullaby mood, she'll be like, can you play the lullaby record for me? So I, I do it, but I don't. I don't, I sing a lot of just folk songs too. I don't like, um, you know, like Johnny Cash and just uh, James Taylor. Like I sing a lot of, right now, where she's at is ballads. Like she just, for a while she just wanted to hear upbeat stuff. And I think when you're younger and you're really little, like a year old, you want to be bounced around and hear all this upbeat stuff. And then I think as you get a little bit older to go to sleep, it helps you to hear stuff that's slower. <laughs> so that's what's yeah. happening to her right now. My mom said her biggest compliment was when I was like seven and a James Taylor song came on the radio and I said, oh, mom, look, he's playing your song. <laughs> That's cool. Let's see. Yep, we're here. We're getting ready to head out on a train to Port Chester. Yeah, well, enjoy. I hope it all goes well. And um, uh, thank you for your question. music. You made me think my brain is now like scrambling. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the second episode of Details, Please. You can read more about this interview and the music that we featured from the Indigo Girls and Amy Ray on our website, detailsplease.org. Thank you very much to Amy Ray and Angie Carlson at Propeller Publicity and to Emily Kennedy. All songs were by the Indigo Girls and Amy Ray. Closer I am
This episode was produced by myself and edited by me and Gail Reed. Dara Hirsch scored and mixed this episode. This is a Rose Reed production. And a very special thanks to my Indigo Girls partner in crime, Samantha Rita Vina, and to Matthew Reed. Mom.